Hello, I'm Ken Bruce. I appeared as a guest on My Time Capsule, and after that I had to give up a job I'd had for 46 years. <sighs> anyway, they want me to tell you that they've started a thing called Acast Plus, where for a small monthly fee you can get the podcast ad-free. For me, I think the ad's are the best thing in it. That Fenton Stevens, he does drone on a bit. Anyway, whatever you like, do something and have a go at it. ACAS Plus, my time capsule. Thanks, Ken. Charming. Anyway, to get my time capsule ad-free and for a bonus my time capsule, the debrief episode every week, subscribe to ACAS Plus. Details in the description of this episode. Thanks. Bloody Ken Bruce, what a cheek. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello, and welcome again to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and in this podcast, I ask my guests to tell me the five things from their life they would like to preserve in a time capsule. They choose four things they cherish and would like to have again, but they must also pick one thing that they rather regret or feel embarrassed about, something they wish they could bury in the ground and never have to think about again. Choosing their five things in this episode is Britain's favourite radio presenter, the king of Radio 2 and the undisputed pop master, Ken Brutes, who's been presenting his morning radio show on Radio 2 on and off since 1986, but mostly on, regularly gaining an audience of over 8 million listeners. He started broadcasting in his native Scotland, presenting the Radio 2 Ballroom, and became a regular presenter for Radio 2 in 1982. In 1985, he replaced Terry Wogan on the breakfast programme, but soon moved to his regular mid-morning slot. In 1998, Ken started a daily quiz. Since then, 10.30 and Popmaster has become the time when the nation takes a break and tests their pop knowledge alongside two contestants on air. Ken also presents the BBC Proms in the Park, was a regular presenter on Friday night is Music Night and hosts the radio broadcast of the Eurovision Song Contest. He occasionally makes an appearance on Countdown in the Dictionary Corner. So here is the gem at the top of the crown, rightly worn by BBC Radio, Ken Bruce. So that's it. What it does is records my side and it records your side and it automatically loads mine to the computer and yours to the cloud. Right. I say those words. <laughs> no real understanding, boy, is it? 
None it whatsoever. Sounds convincing. That's uh, you know we've both been making a living doing that for years. Yeah, just say it with confidence. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> anyway, Ken, I won't take up all your time because it's your your week off. You got a week off or two weeks off? One week off. One week. One off. week. Um, I know. Yeah, I know. I've never had more than two weeks off in my life. Actually, that's not true. But this time last year, I had to go off and have an operation. And I took mm. three weeks off. That's the longest I've ever been off. <laughs> you lazy good for nothing. <laughs> I know. Better than work ethic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you have to do it. You have to do it, Ken, because let's face it, you are the most well-known voice in the country, I would say, other than possibly the Queen. And uh, no, I was going to say Rob Brydon, but no, he's you anyway, isn't he? He does you. <laughs> yeah, and he, he's the... he makes more money being me than I do. That's true. Is, uh, uh, it's been a long time coming because uh, it's been a long, slow burn Yeah. Um, to suddenly find everybody's looking at you and saying, oh, you're, you know, you're very good. Well, for most of the time, people didn't even know I was there. So uh, I've been through... A long time of uh, people not really noticing me. Yeah. So to have people noticing me now, it's not going to go to my head. I can be <laughs> sure of that. And it's uh, it's going to be, uh, it's, I'm just enjoying it, but I'm not making too much of it. Well, do you think that whole thing is that nobody ever spoke to anybody else about how regularly they listen to Popmaster? No, I think it's just one of those things that's always, you know, to, in people's perception, it's always been there. Mm. But um, it's only when people start talking to each other that they say, um, oh, yeah, this is actually, you know, it's, it's quite good. And, and the quiz particularly is something that people did start talking to each other about. And small groups of people sprang up who were all playing against each other. And we discovered that people were actually putting down their coffees or their tools at 10.30 Mm. to play along with this. And, yes. and that, it's been, a, as I say, a very long, slow process. You know, it's been running 20-odd years now, the quiz, and you think, uh, you know, nobody really paid a huge amount of attention to begin with. No. Uh, and it's just, it's gradually seeped into people's consciousness. <laughs> <laughs> it's the greatest thrill when something that I've done has been an answer. Yes, yeah, the chicken song. Which, of course, you've based your entire fortune upon. Entire fortune, <laughs> absolutely. It's kept me going. <laughs> yes. But you were paid a princely sum for that, weren't you? I was paid more of a princely sum than almost anybody else who was involved in it. Oh, right. Oh, that's good. Because I was the only person who took a percentage. Well, so you didn't end up like uh, Andy White, the seven-pound Beatle, who no. uh, played drums on Love Me Do. No, that's all no. That's got for it. <laughs> no, thank goodness for that. So anyway, we're going to talk about five things from your life that you'd like to put into a time capsule. And you've got sort of too many, I would imagine. Well, yeah, I find it quite difficult. I, I, at first I thought, uh, I wonder what kind of thing. I didn't want to fall into the trap that uh, that diplomat did once famously when he was asked by a newspaper <laughs> what he wanted for Christmas. And he said something like, you know, oh, a set of golf clubs and a box of chocolates. And he discovered that everybody else who'd been approached had said, world peace, or, you know, <laughs> an end to the conflict in the Middle East. And he said, I'm just a bottle of rosé. But I've decided just go for things that um, would mean something to me when I come across them again in years to come. Uh, mm -hmm. And so they're a, a strange and eclectic bunch. But I'm going to start with a map of Glasgow, just a street map of Glasgow, about the 1970 mark. Right. Because I was born and brought up there. And I sort of came to fruition round about the 1970 mark. I was uh, 19 years of age uh, and school finished. And I was trying to find where I was going in the world. And I ended up just working in Glasgow, washing cars for a time. And uh, I got to meet the Scottish working man and woman of the time, more than I had done ever at school. 
Mm. And I threw myself into classical life at that time. And I went into pubs and bars that I would never have dreamt of going into as a gently brought up boy. Um, <laughs> and I was taken to all sorts of places, like the, the Seaman's Mission, you know, <laughs> drinking beer with the Merchant Navy Club and things like that. Uh, and it was fantastic. It was the best grounding. And I just want to remember Glasgow at that time because it's a very different city now to what it was back then. It's been comprehensively rebuilt and it's been gentrified to an enormous extent. But then it still had massive poverty, which I think still, unfortunately, uh, obtains to this day. But it also had, you know, a, a spirit, a, a generosity of spirit amongst its people um, that was quite infectious. And I think the thing about Glasgow compared with, say, Edinburgh, Mm. Uh, was that the extent of the social strata was not as great in Glasgow as it was in other places. There was no establishment in Glasgow, which there was in Edinburgh, of the mm. lawyers and the poets and things like that. Uh, <laughs> Glasgow was just professional people down to working people. And yeah. it, it was quite a narrow gap, really. And everybody spoke the same kind of language and everybody had the same kind of sense of humor, even if they'd been, you know, well brought up, so to speak, uh, if it had quite a bit of money. People still had the same down-to-earth attitude, I think. So that's what I liked about Glasgow, and um, that's what I miss in a way. I don't ever really think I'll live back there again. I, in fact, I'm pretty sure I won't. But it was a, a lovely city to be part of round about that time, with many, many faults. But um, And the docks were still still thriving, weren't they, at that time? Yeah. Yeah, it was just before the Upper Clyde Shipbuilders kind of stuff started, and then there was a massive groundswell of worker power, if you like, you know, where the workers said, you know, we'll run the shipyards, we will work almost for nothing to make sure that they stay in business. And it was a great moment, you know, Jimmy Reed and people like that. Amazing people. Uh, yeah, and uh, as I say, it was at a time where there wasn't a massive difference in opinion between the very well off and the not very well off. And I think everybody was pulling in much the same direction. It's one of the few places I can think of. I think probably Liverpool, maybe it's docks, but where uh, the politics of the people is fairly consistent right across the field. It doesn't matter how rich yeah. you are. Yeah, I think that's certainly true of Glasgow. Uh, I mean, I know that in Glasgow Corporation, they didn't use the term conservatives. Um, they were progressives. <laughs> I think they, they called themselves. So you know, even though there was uh, a division, uh, it was not an obvious one. Uh, no. It was uh, disguised under different <laughs> not names. Not one they'd want to admit <laughs> to. <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, but, you know, a very warm city. Somebody once said the difference between uh, Edinburgh and Glasgow is that you'd go to a bus stop in Edinburgh and stand there uh, until the bus comes. If you go to a bus stop in Glasgow, you will stand there for 10 seconds until somebody says, is this no terrible? Is this no hellish? Where are these bloody buses going to? You know, uh, so you're in a conversation, you're amongst friends immediately. Yeah. Where, and uh, as a, a, a journalist uh, I know called Jack McLean, he used to write for the Glasgow Herald, and he um, said that he'd been in Edinburgh once, and he'd become quite well known. And somebody had said to him, you're that Jack McLean, aren't you? And uh, he said, yes, yes, that's right. He said, uh, you're not from here, are you? And they said, no, no, we're from Glasgow. So how, how did you know? And he said, well, first of all, you told me who I was rather than asked me who I am. <laughs> and, and secondly, you're speaking to me at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's supposed to be the, the thing that's sort of 
well, I think, wrong with the South. If you talk to people, they look at you as if you're slightly mad or they're a bit frightened by it. Whereas the further north you go, the more people are willing to just start chatting. In fact, it's one of the things that my oldest grandchild noticed about me in the last couple of years. And I heard him whisper it to my wife. He said, Granddad will speak to anyone. <laughs> as if, you know, he clearly knew you weren't supposed to. But... um. I was proud of it. Yes, yes. Oh, so you should be. Yes. Mm. You see people backing away from you, looking, <laughs> they do, looking around. Yes. From, they yes. do. <laughs> it kind of comes down to whether you're an extrovert or an introvert. Uh, and I think, uh, I mean, a lot of people in radio are basically introverts. Mm. Uh, they're happy to work on their own. They're usually not terribly keen on appearing you know, massively in public uh, and stress a bit about it. And usually also hate going into rooms for the people mm. where they don't know people. So um, I, I think the radio people tend to be introverts. Probably quite true in acting as well, but there are a lot of extroverts in acting. Otherwise, mm. you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't get on the stage if you didn't have some of the extrovert in you. And I say, I'm, I'm more of an introvert, but um, I have no problem about appearing on stage as myself, I, I'm very, I, I love that, in fact. <laughs> what I, I, I could never do is appear as somebody else and remember lines. Uh, that was, <laughs> I, I cannot remember lines. I, I can remember what I'm going to say because mm. it's in there, but I, I can't memorize lines. No. Or, or I probably can, but I get massively nervous about forgetting them. So it's really not worth the candle. It occasionally day. hits actors as well. They go for years sure. and years, and then suddenly they get the jitters. And they, they have to stop. Yeah. But actually, I know quite a number of actors who I would describe as introverts. And they only ever come out of themselves and appear extrovert when they're on stage. Off stage, incredibly quiet, very shy. Radio people, I think, uh, you know, you can't generalise really, but mostly um, they're massive egotists who uh, are <laughs> sitting in a room by themselves saying the most outrageously egotistical things, but blushing at the same time that they've said it. <laughs> so I think I probably fall into that category. Do you, in a way, sort of imagine one person when you're presenting the radio, um, rather than the sort of nine million that it is? Yeah, you can't. I don't think you could ever think of a, an audience out there you have to it, it, it's not some people you say oh imagine a little old granny in a you know a, a wee cottage <laughs> in the highlands that doesn't that doesn't work for me uh but um it is it's a one-to-one -one conversation and um, i don't have any one person in mind but i'm talking to one person occasionally um, you have to acknowledge that there's more than one person there but most people are listening to the radio alone so there's no point in you speaking to Hello, everyone. You know, I hate to hear that. Can't stand <laughs> hearing. Hello, everyone, because it's not everyone. It's just, you know, this person listening to you. You know, these days, very often just with headphones. So it's not even radio in the corner mm. of the room that other people might pick up on. So it is very definitely a one to one conversation. I used to, um, when I was starting out, I, I used to sort of pitch it as if I was speaking to my brother. So it's somebody with whom I had. An understanding, a, a lot of shared mm -hmm. experience. But if I hadn't seen them for a while, I'd have to explain a couple of things, you know. So it's saying, yeah, there was that story in the paper yesterday, and you have to go through. You can't just say that story. You've got to explain the story and what it was about, mm. and then um, give a little detail. But you have the understanding that they would get your sense of humour and know where you were going with something, and know when you were being serious, and know when you weren't. And that's the kind of thing I 
would apply on the radio. And I think mm. some people don't get it for a while, or they never get it. But you have to just go with what you think is, you know, you and the kind of people you like and get on. And the self-deprecating thing, that's very much your personality. And in fact, when you think back about the great, so Terry Wogan as well before you, he in fact allowed the audience to insult him. Yes. Because right? he would just read out the letters, but he would only ever read out letters that said, you're an idiot, Wogan. And quite often today you'll hear people on radio shows saying, we've got a letter from Marjorie, and she's saying, I really love this show, it's great, you're, you're <laughs> yeah. doing such a great job. Yeah. You go, why are you reading that out? Yeah, I, I can't read those sort of things. Uh, and if um, I do, <laughs> if I do, I say, oh, this is obviously intended for somebody else. Um, so you, I think this partly is being Scottish yeah, and being Glasgow, because you were not allowed to, to say anything that was remotely big-headed or building yourself up, <laughs> you were immediately slapped down if you ever said anything like that <laughs> in the, you know, the harshest way. So uh, that, that yes. stems from there, I think, that uh, you, know, you don't get above yourself, don't get ideas, and be the first to knock yourself rather than wait for other yeah. people to do it. It's reacting to the playground bully kind of thing. You, know, you, just, you get yourself out of it by you know, criticizing yourself or... You know, Saying you were wrong. Mm, I say you're right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, right. absolutely. Yes. Couldn't give you all, mate. You know, you get out of it that way, and so that's a, that's a natural mm. thing. But I think it does work on radio. I think it's the right thing to do on radio uh, because you're speaking one person to one. You're not trying to impress a massive amount of people. I don't like people who talk to an audience on radio or shout. No, I mean it's not a party. It's, it's <laughs> communication. Yeah. Um, so I think you know things like the Radio One Roadshow that used to happen. Yes, yeah. I mean that that is a kind of party, and you're eavesdropping on it. But most radio, you don't want to feel as if you're excluded as a listener. You want to feel as if you're part of it, and the person there is talking to you. And that's the big difference between television and radio to me, because you know in radio you are just speaking one to one. Television, you're always sort of putting on a show, you're looking at the camera, you've got your best you on, whereas on radio you can be, you can be doing anything you like during uh, the broadcast, yes. but you're communicating, it's like a phone oh. call, you know, you're na more natural on a phone call. I bet you hated it when they brought in webcams. Yes, I did. You I, can see me on the webcam, I don't want to be seen. Well, we, we got rid of those quite quickly, actually. They, mm -hmm. When they first came in, we insisted they only took a still every five minutes. Um, so <laughs> what happened was uh, they took a still of you sitting absolutely stock still at a microphone. Five minutes later, you were in the same pose. So nothing looked different. <laughs> it was just a different time code on the bottom. So eventually <laughs> they went away. For the kind of stuff I do, there's no use for a webcam. It's like the Wizard of Oz, you know, behind the curtain. You don't want to see somebody pressing the buttons and turning the handle. <laughs> yeah, you, you want to just hear what's happening. You want to hear the music. You don't want yeah, to yeah. see somebody, you know, pressing buttons or in the old days you're taking LPs out of sleeves and putting them on the ground decks. Now, in, in a way, you imagine that while the music is playing, that the DJ is sitting there listening to it as you are. Yeah, uh, and now, actually, usually nowadays you are. In uh, days gone by, when you did have to take LPs or singles out of sleeves, put them on the ground, line them up, listen to the stuff, you, you couldn't listen to songs as they were being played no. uh, and quite often you know in the days when i started you were playing things like adam faith records which were one minute and 40 seconds uh, <laughs> you know i think poor me by adam faith is 141 or something like that so you know yeah. you, the time you've taken it out of the sleeve put it on the deck put your headphones <laughs> on found the opening note 
set it back, fine, bye bye. Your one minute and 30 is gone, and you've got 10 seconds to think of what you're going to say next. So it was a real scatter. It was, you didn't have time to think, but you sort of got on with it. And I suppose, in a way, that gave you more. Uh, kind of adrenaline. And that's the old disc jockeying. That's exactly what you're doing, disc jockeying. Yeah. yeah. You know, at least if anybody calls the programme or is listening to the programme, you'll be able to tell them which street to go down in Glasgow with your roadmap of Glasgow from the 1970s. And they'll say, that's a one-way street now, Ken. Oh, no, no. I'll say, well, I, I can remember fall, falling into the gutter on that road. Yeah, that's... <laughs> don't tell me that's not there. No, don't tell me there's not a plaque there to mark that spot. Uh, yeah, so I'll be happy to look at that, yes. Great. Okay. All right, we'll put that in as your first item then. Yeah, yeah. So what's number two? Right, number two. I've had to write these down because, as I previously mentioned, my um, memory is absolutely appalling. Can I get something as large as a continuity studio desk? Yes. Yeah, can I have that? People have put in huge things. Oh, well. Craig Ferguson put in America. Well, that, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't go that far. No, it's a hell of a lot of digging. I tell you that. Well, much. I'd be busting the seams a bit, wouldn't it? But I, um, <laughs> I think if I could have a, a BBC Type D continuity desk, that would be because mm. that was the, the kind of desk I cut my teeth on, if you like. Is that where you started? Well, not quite, no, because I um, I started in a hospital radio, and um, right. it was a, an old kind of American mixer, faders and things like that. Uh, and when I joined the BBC, the very first desk I worked on was uh, uh, what we call a Type B continuity, which was the old uh, black and white rotary faders and a, a key to switch the microphone on and off. And... Uh, Two gramophone decks, as they were called, which uh, <laughs> um, were metal. And when you, you started them, they kind of made a terrible whirring noise and clunk. And then the Second World War got in the way of your career. <laughs> yes. It does sound a bit like that, doesn't it? Uh, <laughs> so, uh, sitting there beside John Snag. But this was, uh, this was uh, an old studio which was, uh, you know, very much uh, left behind. Yeah, but of course that equipment probably was from then. Yeah. Um, so this was uh, the control room in Broadcasting House Glasgow on the first floor. Uh, the, the control room was out there, and this little continuity studio was next to it. And at the time, it was only being used for um, what they called VHF opt-outs to the Northwest Highlands and things like that, So, uh, <laughs> and schools programs. So it was a schools program I was announcing, mm. and uh, you just had to wind your fader, click your mic on, and do your BBC schools. Now, Exploring Scotland, which... Occasionally it came out as Exploding Scotland, which is not a good idea. Um, exploring Scotland, <laughs> or the religious service for primary schools. It's taken today by the Reverend James Smith. And then sit for 40 minutes until that was all mm. over. Uh, and that was that was where I started. But the, uh, the Type D continuity, which is the one that London was running at the time, was the state of the art, sort of, for the time. It was about 1970 vintage. And the lovely quadrant faders with a lovely clicking sound, and they lit up as you opened them. And uh, oh, and mm. they, they were so ergonomically right and easy to operate that I would like to have one of those with a D202 microphone in it, which was the standard. <laughs> uh, although, as I say, the first one, um, the first one I broadcast on in the BBC was a, a 4038, which is the old heart shaped microphone. Oh, wow, yeah. It's, it's still in use, I have to say, when we do um, orchestral concerts with the BBC Concert Orchestra, mm. they still use the 4038 for brass microphones, for picking up the brass section. So they are they're the great microphones, but they were, you know, ribbon microphones and give you a beautiful sound. For anybody who's never been backstage or behind the scenes at the BBC, they have cupboards full of these extraordinary microphones, don't they? Yeah, and things that, I mean, as I said, these go back to the 40s, 50s, these microphones, and they still work 
beautifully. And they would give you a lovely vocal sound. And they could work from either side. And so you can open them. They can be omni mics uh, or they can work one side or the other side. I remember once in the Gallic department, somebody came in to read the Gallic news behind one of these microphones and obeying correct studio discipline, held the clipboard behind the microphone so that, you know, it wasn't bouncing or anything like that. Unfortunately, it held it a bit too close and the metal clip at the top of the clipboard clanged into the back of the microphone, was attracted by the magnetism of it, and he could, <laughs> he could not remove it from the microphone. <laughs> <laughs> there was this going on while he was trying to wrest it from the mic. And so they had their problems, but uh, the lovely, yeah. lovely mic. And so it's just a, basically a nice piece of old BBC equipment, and the, the time mm. continuity was beautiful, so that I can remember uh, the happy days. So you'll probably remember that we used to play tricks on continuity announcers quite often on Radioactive all those years ago. It was my favourite bit, listening to see what they would do, because you'd say, well, we seem to have finished slightly early, um, so we've got about 30 seconds left, really. Um got anything to do ourselves but um here's a bbc continuity announcer with his famous impressions of farmyard animals and that would be the end of our recording and then it would go to the continuity announcer who had no warning this was going to happen at all <laughs> I, love that. I remember one going <clears throat> yes that's a sheep it's asleep <laughs> well, that was the great thing I, I found when I joined the BBC about continuity announcers and newsreaders was that they were, they were people of great humour. They were really funny people, uh, lively people who were forced mm. because of their work to be very serious in, the, in yes. the course of their work. But the rest of the time, they could be, in some cases, you know certainly were a bit boring but in most cases they were actually you know hooligans you know and the thing that attracted me to the work originally was reading a book by jack demanio who was the presenter of the today program back in the 60s and he had been an announcer and i read this book and the things that they got up to was just a, you know the fifth form dorm at some minor public school it was all chaps going out drinking and putting bets on and uh, rushing <laughs> back to read a news bulletin and missing the time or, or pouring water on each other's heads or setting fire to the script things like that <laughs> trying to put them off it, yeah it sounded like a riot <laughs> and it was that kind, that kind of uh, you know can't be asked yeah. uh, attitude <laughs> which I, I, I really loved. And I thought, you know, these people, they're utterly professional when they're doing the job, but they're behaving like big kids when they're not. All the time, there is that dilemma, that trauma that's going on in the back of their mind, this fear that at any moment something's going to break down, and you're the person then who has to carry on. I just I think like that one day. In the ancient continuity I was telling you about, I had to present, or announce rather, the piping program, half past six on a Thursday evening. And all I had to do was say, and now yeah, today's piping program presented by whoever it was, you know, and the tape would play in. Well, when I got to the studio about five or six minutes to go, the technical operator was fanning around. And I can't find the tape, can't find the piping tape. So I said, well, it must be here somewhere. So we went through the box and it wasn't there. So with about two minutes to go, I said, right, okay, I'll just, I'll go on. You keep looking and see if you can find it. So at 6.30, I said that this is BBC Radio Scotland. I'm afraid we cannot bring you at the moment the piping programmes. Until we can, here's a piece of music. So I'd taken there were about three BBC coded music discs, which was an ancient system they had of just cheap music, <laughs> usually mm -hmm. something classical. But I found there were two or three there, and I put one on. And 
to cut the long story short, the whole half hour, I just played these records and <laughs> introduced them and backed out them, being a bit of a DJ, which I'd been, of course. And so uh, at the end of it, I thought, oh, this is great. I've saved the day. You know? And I thought, well, good old Ken, you know, he saved the day. And I went away quite happy. And then word came back to me that the head of programs had gone ballistic, saying he should have put on some piping music, not playing that sort of rubbish. <laughs> Where the <laughs> do you think I'm going to find you know, in a concert <laughs> studio with four discs in them? Where am I going to find piping music, for God's sake? So that was my first experience of doing the right thing and getting no bloody thanks for it. You've worked with the BBC ever since. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I've grown used to it over the years. <laughs> Jeffrey Perkins, who you'll remember, yes, indeed. was the producer of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And they used to put those programmes out and they would be two tapes long. And once, with the show going out live, the first tape was on and they were still editing the second tape. That is quite tight. That's running it a little mm. bit too close. Apparently the goons the same. Eric Sykes used to cover for Spike Milligan. So if he turned up and said, nope, haven't thought of anything, got no jokes, <laughs> nope, then Eric Sykes would be sent to the back room and would just type furiously yeah. and try and get a programme done. Spike, obviously a genius, but, you know, mm -hmm. an unreliable genius, uh, as so often yeah. is the case. Uh, Eric Sykes, you know, the absolute craftsman who would deliver and did deliver all through his life, you know, great performances yeah. and great scripts and uh, utterly reliable. Yeah, absolutely. And I think people are, well, they're hard pushed to tell the difference between Eric Sykes's scripts and Spike Milligan's. That's a gift. That's a real gift. Which actually sort of leads me on to another of the things. OK, well, we put the desk in and let's move on to the next thing. Right, we're going to take a short break here, not for a traffic report or the news, but for something that Ken doesn't usually have to pause for, an ad break. We'll be back after these messages. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome back. 
And if you didn't get any messages, imagine that it was a very brief thought for the day. Though why people want to listen to someone thinking, I'll never know. Anyway, back to Ken Bruce and his time capsule. A nice pair of drumsticks, if I may, which will remind me of my largely failed attempts to play the drums properly. But I would have loved to have been that kind of drummer who could be given a sheet of music, a session drummer, basically, Mm -hmm. a sheet of music, sit down and play it as if he'd been playing all his life. I know a few people uh, and admire a few people in the business who can do that. And uh, I I just, Mm -hmm. I can watch them and say, good, how do you do that? And Drum music, if you've ever seen a sheet of it. Is, yes, it's weird, isn't it? It's like somebody has taken a bottle of ink and gone <laughs> across, across the page. <laughs> it's just dots everywhere. Uh, and I, over the years, very slowly learned to read it a bit, uh, but I'm right. not, uh, certainly nowhere near the ability of these people just to pick up a sheet and know what's what wanted uh, and play not just what's on the page, but do little fills and you know play something that's right for the music. I've got to know, I'm pleased to say, as a fan, people like Clem Cattini over the years who played on so many hits of the 60s. He played originally on Telstar. He was one of Joe Meek's chums who played on, on that. And they went on to play on just about you know every number one of the 60s. Things like Everlasting Love by the Love Affair. And a lot of these groups didn't play well enough to be no. on a record. You know, the singers would, would be fine, but a lot of the musicians, the backing the musicians in the groups in the 60s, weren't, you know, utterly uh, au fait with the instruments. So you'd get people like Jimmy Page or Jim, Jim Sutherland playing guitar on these, and you'd get Clem Cattini and Andy White and people like that playing the drums and so people like that uh, and still goes on to this day i'm working with the bbc concert orchestra they of course don't have a kit drummer as part of their lineup so they hire in freelance kit drummers um like uh, mike smith ralph salmons and glasson people like that who are just absolutely brilliant at playing it right you know ralph salmons for instance plays with the water boys on tour he's a session musician who's played on everything recently the gary barlow album guy Mark Fletcher, who's uh, Ronnie Scott's drummer, I first met him when he was playing the kit part for uh, West Side Story. Um, you know, da, 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 da. Mambo, Mambo. Oh, right, yeah. Which is a really complicated percussion part. Uh, and he's just reading it off a piece of paper, but getting the feel absolutely right. And mm. that's the, I mean, I always wish I could have done something like that. If, if I hadn't gone into broadcasting, I would like to think I could have done that but i was never good enough and i would never have had the application i think to be able to be as mm. good as they are uh, the great thing about broadcasting is that you can just sort of bumble by uh, you don't have to be you don't have to be precise uh, where you know that kind of work is incredibly precise uh, yes i can't do that but that's something i would like to have thought i could have done uh, or i would have been very happy to think it's like the great orchestras of course I've stood in the middle of great orchestras and done narrations while they've been playing pieces of music. The Snowman, I've done that live with a full orchestra. I would have spent weeks practising, and uh, I don't think they have, because quite often you can see them going through the music and sort of practising little bits of it before they start. And then he says, OK, shall we have a go-through? And they go, OK, and they turn it to the front of the music, and off they go, Yeah, just sight-reading, but beautifully. It's a thrilling thing 
to stand with an orchestra on a stage. Yeah. Uh, and I never get tired of it. I think it's beautiful. <laughs> you do it almost every Friday, though, don't well, you? Well, not so much now. I'm afraid it's, uh, that the costs of taking care of that they can't mm. run friday night is music night but i used to love doing that doing them live as well which is great fun because then you've got to get out on time and uh, that is part of the, the real thrill of broadcasting doing it to time and knowing that you've contributed in fact you may have been instrumental in bringing it out on time and that's where you walk away thinking right i've done my job that's why they pay you mm. that amazing thing of reading something live on air most people would be terrified of that. Hmm. And I've done it a couple of times. I did do <laughs> Poetry Please with Roger McGough. Um, this Philip Larkin piece, read by Michael Fenton Stevens. And the light comes on <laughs> and off you go. I was shaking like a leaf. It's a funny thing, because uh, the red light has never bothered me. It's what I live for, in a sense. If you ask me to sit down and record something, I will probably fluff over it or I'll get something wrong. If the red light is on, I'll get it right nine times out of ten. Yeah. Uh, and if I don't get it right, I'll cover it. It's just part of you know why I do broadcasting. It's live or not at all, really. Because the, the mm. red light gives you that slight adrenaline flow that just makes everything work. I suffer a lot with my sinuses and things like that. So mm. every so often in real life, I will have a, a sneezing fit every couple of days that will last for two or three minutes. You know, I'll be just sneezing every few seconds constantly. Now, that's been the case all my life, but I think I've probably only sneezed on air about three times. It took me about 20 years. That showed I was relaxed, if you like, on the red light, or it didn't matter. But there's something in the body that has stopped that happening. But I've never worried about speaking on the radio. And I suppose when you think about it, actually, we all talk off the cuff all the time. So why people should be so concerned about doing it? It doesn't really make any sense, does it? But actually, nearly everybody, if you put that red light on, would go, I don't know what to say. Yeah. Although in the years when uh, I was in Scotland and interviewing an awful lot of people, I mean, I was doing these shows every day and we were having an interview every 15 minutes. I was doing a three hour, one times three hour and 20 minute show. So I was getting through an awful lot of people, the vast majority of whom I cannot now remember because it was just <laughs> going straight yeah. through. Uh, but we also had, if we pre-recorded an interview, people would say, oh, uh, oh, sorry, can I go back? You know, if they did it live, they would do a lot better. They would actually get through it much better when it was live, mm. just because there was that kind of pressure to get it right. When you think you can go back and do it again, then you will. The corollary of that, though, is in Popmaster, you get people who score really well on the quiz at home, get them on the air, and they get a brain freeze. Two questions wrong to begin with, and that's it. Nothing else will come. You can hear those people do that as well. It's awful to listen to. Yeah, it is. It's terrible. You know, I hate it. You think, oh, no, poor thing. I know you know this. I want to give them the answer. <laughs> I bet you do. But of course, I'm too tough to do that. <laughs> too tough. Well, that's your drummer in you, you see. Yeah, well, that's it. Yeah, yeah. Hit it. Go for it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you still drum? Yes, yes. Uh, we have a little band. Well, uh, not in lockdown, but uh, we have a little band in the village where I live. Brilliant. Um, it's a dad's band, basically. But uh, mom, <laughs> some mums in it as well. Uh, yeah. But it is it's middle-aged people uh, <laughs> and a strange motley crew with two doctors. We have uh, somebody who runs a uh, fish farm. We have me, and we have it's just a variety of people who have to live <laughs> yes. uh, in this area. Village and life. It is the golden rule that you're only allowed to play 
in this band if you live in the village or if you are closely connected with somebody who lives in the village or somebody in the village brought you along. We're not very, we're not any good at all, really, but we do <laughs> get points for enthusiasm. We're an enthusiastic band and people have a good time, provided they're not expecting flawless musicianship. <laughs> Well, I'm sorry to tell you this, but I heard the other day that apparently that house around the corner has just been sold and it's been bought by Steve Gadd. Oh, that's, that's me out the band, that. <laughs> oh, well, it's been a good run. <laughs> Brilliant. Okay, we will put a nice set of drumsticks. We'll put those into the time capsule. Thank you. That's three items. So we've got the, the map of Glasgow, we've got your continuity announcer desk, and we've got drumsticks. So what's next? Right, the next is, I don't want the, the full-size thing, but I would like a little model of a Routemaster bus, please. Uh-huh. Because um, <laughs> you can have the actual uh, thing if you want. The thing is, I don't really need the actual thing because we still have one left of the bunch of buses that we used to have, full size buses. <laughs> we had a, a, a group of friends and I, we bought a Routemaster bus. Oh. But. 2004. Did you go to Greece on it? Uh, unfortunately, no, because none of us oh. can sing well enough. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> we bought this thinking, well, it'd be a nice, because it, it was really, it was on offer very cheaply. And we just thought, oh, why not? For the laugh. And so um, we bought this bus and I sat my bus driving test. That was one of the worst things I've ever gone through in my life. Because, you know, if you ever try to learn anything new at the age of 50-something, as I was at the time. It's not easy. <laughs> it's far from easy. No. So we bought this bus, and then we thought it cost us a bit, not so much for the purchase, but for refurbishing it. So we thought, well, we better get some money back on this. So we thought we'll start hiring it out. And then we thought, well, there's no point just hiring out one bus, so we've got another one. Uh, and then we reached the problem of, you know, where do you keep them? So in the end, we ended up with... Enormous debt. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, pretty much, yeah. And <laughs> they were, were going out, it was going really well for a while, and going out doing weddings, uh, you know. It was a, a lovely time, you know, and I, uh, we, we ran a service or a festival, and, uh, you know, I worked out the timetable and everything like that, and uh, I drove, and I was also a conductor at times. I, I really, you know, it was a, a fun time, but... Like any business, unless you've got the time to devote to it, it's never going to work. And so eventually we had to give up mm. just before lockdown, luckily, as we, uh, we wound up the business <laughs> and we sold off the buses. Uh, and we do actually still have, I think, one left um, in sunning itself somewhere in Buckinghamshire. And if you'd like to buy the bus from us, Mike, I know it's the sort of thing that could just be sitting outside your house yeah. and would really... You know, it, as you say, holidays, not a problem anymore. No, I've got the grandkids. They could Grandchildren. Uh, well, it would be rather romantic, wouldn't it? If you, you've never thought of actually doing summer holiday. I always loved the idea of the upper deck having a sort of a shower in it and a living room. Yes, it'd be lovely. And the chemical toilet is another matter. This may <laughs> not be quite so enjoyable. And the fact that uh, it's got an open <laughs> rear platform. So, uh, you know. Uh, True. It's, but I suppose it's useful for emptying the chemical toilet, actually, uh, as you're driving along. <laughs> But, uh, no, the problem is its uh, top speed is 40 miles per hour Mm. and it's 12 miles to the gallon or something like that, diesel. So it's not going to be either the fastest or cheapest way of getting anywhere. But the romance is there, so don't don't let me put you off if you're thinking of it. No, I might put an offer in. 
Excellent. Thank not you. Not a big much. one. <laughs> In that case, we're not interested. I'm sorry. <laughs> but yeah, it was great fun. And, uh, you know, controlling one of these beasts was, uh, was enjoyable, very enjoyable. So you've passed the test and you're, um, yeah, you have that skill. I may have the skill, but I no longer have the license because you need to pass a medical every year once you get over a certain age. So oh, I thought right, yeah. <laughs> there's very little chance of that now. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> I wasn't really driving at all. Uh, you can still drive on a private license, by the way, uh, as long as you have no right. more than eight people on board. So you can just use it like a car almost. Yeah, you can. I'm getting tempted yeah, now. Yeah, I can see I'm, that. You, can you're tell. drawing me in, I aren't you? I can tell, yeah. Oh, you Glaswegians, <laughs> honestly. <laughs> I'll even let you come around and kick the tyres if you want. <laughs> just to secure the deal. Yeah, know. obviously. You're talking to a man who knows nothing about mechanics or anything. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> just the <laughs> ideal dupe. I mean, the ideal customer. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the sort of man who once suggested to a builder that it would be a good idea if we were going to knock that wall down that perhaps we should put a jcb in <laughs> and he said i think you mean an rsj and that's what yeah that's, that's it yeah, that's yeah. something the, with letters the jcb yeah. would knock the wall down for you rather than <laughs> <laughs> okay well a very romantic idea i love the idea of the old Routemaster bus jumping on and off the back. Yes. If it's only allowed to go 40 miles an hour, you can virtually do that at full speed. Yes, exactly. Oh, yeah, yeah. No harm would come to you at all. You can ring the bell. You can <laughs> ring the bell. Stop it now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> We've got to move on to your last item, which is something you want to reject from your life, get rid of. Uh, well, I, well, this is really something that I want to come back to, if that's all right. Which oh, is, right, okay. uh, oh no, I've got I've got to reject something, have I? Yes, right. Let me reject something, and that is most of the contents of the room I'm in. If I could just wave a magic wand or snap my fingers and declutter our house entirely, that would be the gift of a lifetime. So, really, what I would like to do is just if you could arrange for me to pop out into the garden for 10 minutes, you know, <laughs> somebody to come in and just take everything away that is of no further use in this house. And then I'll come back in and think, ah, oh, this is what I've been trying to do for 20 years. And it's got everything out of that. Because uh, I'm afraid we are a messy, cluttered family. You know, we've got three school-aged kids, and I'm not a particularly tidy person myself. If you, you know, I know where everything is, but it doesn't look mm -hmm. particularly nice. So if somebody could just remove everything that I have not used for, say, two years, apart from anything with sentimental attachment, and I'm not, I'm not a great sentimentalist, uh, you know, for objects. Objects really, you know, I can look at it and say, yeah, chuck it out. Like, but I don't. Mm. That's the problem. So if somebody could come here and just say, what, do you, what have you got all these things with? You've got three copies of the same book or something like that, you know. <laughs> <laughs> You've got things that don't work. You've got uh, these late Dymo labeling machines that hasn't worked in 10 years, but it's still there. You know? You've know, yeah. got a box full of paper-cutting scissors that the kids used when they were five. They're never going to use mm -hmm. Chuck them. If somebody could come in, a declutterer, if you could arrange for a declutterer, and I, all this stuff could go into the time capsule and I would never see it again. When you're finished with them, send them round to my place. <laughs> well, I, no, I'm happy to, like a sort of a, a makeover team. If you could. Come round, take it all. It all goes into the time capsule yep. in its own very stuffed cupboard. Really, you, know, you have to push hard on the door to close it. I think you might need one of those vacuum pack things, you know, that sort of pump all the air out, yeah, yeah. Yes, we'll do that for you. Although I'm interested to find out, Ken, what is the other thing you were going to put in that you liked? Uh, the thing I wanted to, to was any book by P.G. Woodhouse. Ah. Because... 
of all writers, his work has given me the most pleasure. And I can pick a Woodhouse book off the shelf, even if I read it fairly recently, read it again and still get pleasure out of previously unseen parts, uh, things that I hadn't noticed the first time around. Mm. So uh, that's been with me since I was a teenager. And of all the books I've read, happily or for work, um, <laughs> that is the, the author I would always go back to and, and would know I would enjoy reading even mm. a few pages of. So that would be something to look forward to finding in the future. Lovely, yeah. Yeah, he's a brilliant writer. He really is. I did a play in Salisbury a couple of years ago based on his golfing stories. And the great thrill that I got in it was that at one point I put in a joke into this script and one of the reviews quoted it as the genius of Woodhouse. Whoa! And I thought, oh, wow, and that's my joke. The joke was they ran around the back and got into the house through the French windows, or as the French call them, windows. <laughs> yes. Well, look, that's the genius of Fenton Stevens. <laughs> I was very complimented. Yeah, and I, uh, I appeared on Celebrity Mastermind and chose Woodhouse, the Jeeves and Worcester, as my specialist subject. And How did you do? I, I did well. I, I can't remember exactly the number, but I did, I did well. I won, I won the competition that night. So, Brilliant. Uh, um, they obviously worked for me. But it, was, uh, it, it wasn't really like hard work, although I did have to revise. Uh, to, to go the thing that surprised me about Celebrity Mastermind, maybe you shouldn't have, was that not everybody had bothered to revise for going on it. <laughs> and I, I, w I would have been mortified if I hadn't known my specialist subject. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, Woodhouse, for that reason, not particularly for that reason, but that's one of the reasons why I would be delighted to have a bit of Woodhouse with me. Yes, well, if you're going to look good off the cuff, then preparation is the key. Yes, yes. Writing down your ad-libs always works. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I'm just checking I've done all mine. Yep, that, they're all done. Okay, so, Ken, it's been absolutely lovely to talk to you. Lovely to see you again and really great to talk to you. So thank well, you so much for doing this. It's been a huge pleasure. Thank you so much. Most of us who ask questions for a living don't particularly like to answer them but I have loved this I have loved it this oh great like meeting an old chum again which is of course the case you have been listening to My Time Capsule with me Mike Fenton Stevens and my guest Ken Bruce if you enjoyed it then why not have a listen to some of the other guests we've had there are over 80 so far, including Stephen Fry, Sir David Jason, Caroline Quentin, Lucy Porter, David Mitchell and Rob Brighton. And if you subscribe, you'll get all new episodes as they're released. You may then want to rate us and, if the opportunity arises, leave a short review for which we'd be most grateful. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Just look for My Time Capsule and can hear the My Time Capsule theme tune in full on Spotify. It was composed by Pass the Peas Music. This was a cast-off production and the producer was John Fenton Stevens. Right, I'm off to Ken's to pick up that rude master. Then I'm going where the sun shines brightly. I'm going where the sea is blue. Oh, come on, we've seen it in the movies, so let's see if Skegness is everything the local council claim it is. Bye. Bye.